All right, uh, so this is our first uh, kind of official podcast, starting off our uh, 70s in uh, genre cinema. And um, I'm Doug, uh, joined by Peter. And we thought that we would start off with uh, 1978's Superman, also known as Superman the Movie, which is actually what I always thought it was called, although it's only referred to now as Superman. Hmm. I thought it was Superman the Movie also. Yeah, and that's what I distinctly remember from the posters uh, as a child, but it's it's only listed as uh, Superman in IMDb. Hmm. You know, I actually, um, it's funny because I, you know, we didn't see a lot of trailers as kids, but I remember uh, in 77, I went to a friend's house and he had the poster in his room. And that was how I learned that this movie was was coming out at some point. Like, I remember it was a poster of Christopher Reeve in the Superman costume flying above the New York skyline, if I recall correctly. That was the poster. And just like, right. just the poster was exciting to see, you know? Sure. And the movie came out in 1978 and was filmed simultaneously with Superman 2, as we'll discuss later, prior to that, a year or two earlier. Um, belief, a very brief uh, plot summary is, uh, this is the back of the matchbook summary. Um, so movie starts out on Krypton or Krypton, depending on uh, if right. you're highly paid. Um, more, <laughs> I always Brando. thought it was Krypton as a child, but ever since hearing Brando say Krypton, I've completely adopted that because I just think it sounds better. That was worth half the $30 million right there, just <laughs> the way he... So a movie starts out on Krypton where Jor-El, who's Superman's biological father, played by Marlon Brando, uh, it starts out briefly with a trial, which we'll talk about later. And then uh, Jor-El is trying to convince the uh, council or some sort of leadership council on Krypton that uh, the planet is going to be destroyed shortly. They, of course, fail to heed his warning. Right. They don't listen to him, and he promises he's not going to leave, but... Meanwhile, he makes a little space capsule for his only son. They pack up his son, and then the planet starts falling apart. Uh, there's chaos. Models are being destroyed everywhere, and the baby um, Superman flies off away from the planet for a journey to Earth, which takes a few years for him, but relativistically takes thousands of years um, for Krypton time. Um, and he lands in Kansas, makes a big gouge in the ground, and is found by um, the Kents. Right, who, Ma and Pa, originally referred to as Ma and Pa, pa Kent, uh, with Pa Kent notably being played by Glenn Ford. Right. And uh, they uh, decide to adopt him after he picks up the truck uh, when he climbs out of the, out of the crater, and also, also because they're nice. And they raise him, and then the second act of the movie involves his teenage angst being a Superman raised in Smallville in Kansas. Right, and having to hide his powers. Right. And then uh, eventually he, he feels the call of uh, the crystal, he, which his father sent with him to Earth. He travels to, he walks to the North Pole, um, throws his... Uh, and forms the Fortress of Solitude. Right, throws spends, the crystal, which makes the entire fortress. Right. This is, by spends, the way, we've now, we've now done more than the matchbook summary, but go ahead. You're right. <laughs> True. 
I know it's hard to it's you know it's hard to <laughs> it's a two and a half summer. hour movie just say it in two <laughs> sentences right uh, and and so he he then spent several years uh, being lectured by Marlon Brando um, about uh, the way things are and the birds and the bees and then he goes to New York where he assumes his secret identity uh, as Clark Kent as a mild mannered reporter for the for the Daily Planet um, s- instantly becomes attracted to. Uh, to uh, his co-star, um, uh, Jay's Margot Kidder, um, playing Lois Lane. And um, at one point, there's a big helicopter scene, which we'll talk about. Her life is in danger from a helicopter crash. And that day, he sort of reveals himself as Superman to the world for the first time. And following that, he uh, eventually catches the attention of the criminal mastermind, Lex Luthor, who played plans, by Gene Hackman, right? Um, the other, I wonder how much he cost in the movie. He cost but, a lot, I'm sure. Um, well, we should we should just suffice to say that the third act of the movie is Superman versus Lex Luthor at all, right? And uh, at that point, Lex Luthor has a large plan to cause to split off California by causing a huge earthquake by diverting missiles. He figures out that Superman has a weakness that he doesn't even know about, kryptonite. He exposes Superman to kryptonite, launches the missiles. Uh, Superman eventually is able to to save. Stop stop one missile. Right. Yet not the other. Right. The the second missile causes catastrophe, earthquake, and then using uh, a very, very interesting plot device he is able to uh, write the impact of the second missile which we'll get to right so he uh he does that and at the end he he basically goes he he writes everything saves the earth and then flies off into the sunset literally quite quite literally and we should actually talk a little bit about the uh the final shot as he literally uh flies off into the sunset Right. Um, so I will tell you that um, most of what I learned as a child about Superman did not come from uh, – prior to this movie, did not come from the George Reeves television show. It actually came from the Super Friends, the, uh, which I believe was a filmation production, the Super Friends cartoon show, which I watched ad nauseum uh, as a kid. And, and just from – the 70s. Just right, and just from the Super Friends, it was either Filmation or it was, um, um, I think it was Filmation. I'm pretty sure. We could look it up, but I'm pretty sure it was Filmation. But but over the course of the Filmation cartoons, they essentially told Superman's backstory, and it was kind of all you needed to know as a seven-year-old, basically. Right, and they, right, that was, it was a, Basically, a show about Superman and Wonder Woman, and I think Batman. There was right. Batman was there. Green Lantern, the Wonder right. Twins. Wonder Twin powers activate. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said um, to my testes when I was trying to knock up my wife. <laughs> and there we go. It worked once. Actually, it was it was Hanna Barbera. I just looked it up. It was Hanna Barbera. That's right. Um. So. So, you know, when this came out, you know, I imagine I wasn't too different than other kids. I didn't read a ton of comic books, but I knew Superman's backstory enough that when I saw this, I at least had a framework to kind of put it on. Because this is a fairly adult retelling of the Superman legend. Right. 
Right. Um, and pr- you know, prior to that, there was the the George Reeves um, TV series, and there were other, I think, series, and there were, it was also a radio program. Right. I think know, it was a radio program time. first, but again, first. But, and I, I remember watching the George Reeves version almost as a curiosity occasionally on WPIX in New York right. as a kid when they would occasionally show up, but it was. Even for me, and I could watch a lot of stuff. It was too dated. It was too old looking. Yeah, it was pretty uh, And I couldn't get far with it. Although I do like the sort of uh, the, the very, very, very opening scene is a short black and white sequence where they sort of acknowledge the history of, uh, of Superman, almost sort of in other media, sort of talking about him as sort of a comic book figure. Right. And then there's a very, very nice shot of the, the top of the Daily Planet where the planet has the circular, the, the rotating logo uh and it's all done in black and white and then it transitions to the fantastically well done opening credit sequence right uh which is about five minutes long and it's you know it's done in a completely pre-cgi era and it looks fantastic and the credit sequence does three things one is it introduces the score Right, right, because you really you get to sort of hear the full formal Superman John Williams score. Two is it it transitions from black and white to color, and all the text is in a very very brilliant blue, and the Superman logo is in a very very brilliant red. And then uh, from a mechanical point of view, the credit sequence also serves as your journey to Krypton. Like you you start on Earth, the camera goes to the moon. And then you travel through space, and at the end of the credit sequence, you arrive uh, on Krypton, which brings us to Jor-El. So uh, it's a very, very well done and impressive opening, and many people have posted the opening credit sequence to YouTube, and it's sort of good just to watch in and of itself. Um, Let's talk about – before we get into the story too far, let's let's talk about production – um, so this is, uh, it was, I think the producers were uh, Ilya and Alexander Salkin, uh, who had done, uh, were most known in the, the U.S. for their uh, three and four Musketeers movies. Right, which were um, only slightly a couple of years before this. Right. Um, and they were made as two for one. The three and four Musketeers were made back to back. Uh, by the Salkins uh, before they purchased the film rights to Superman in August of 1974. And the three and the four Musketeers were made by, sorry, they were directed by Richard Lester, who we'll get to in a few minutes. Right. Um, Richard Lester of uh, Hard Day's Night, Beatles fame. Right, right. And as, as you said, as you labeled him earlier, when we were discussing this offline, the father of the music video. Right. Um, and... Uh, originally, they had hired none other than Mario Puzo. Puzo or Puzo? Puzo, I think. Puzo to write the screenplay. Uh, I think which he did. He, he did, it. but it was. He wrote a whole he, one. He didn't. It was essentially unworkable. He submitted a 500 page screenplay that Richard Donner, the ultimate director, uh, right. basically felt was completely unusable. Uh, it would be interesting to see if the Puzo script is online. You know, I didn't yeah. look for that, but I would I was be curious about that. Well, to read what everybody, it. What everybody said was that it was very campy. Um, 
it was the way that the movie ended up with a sort of a serious tone and the, the his screenplay apparently was was campy which is interesting because you know the three musketeers was campy right and the, so the salkins probably were happy with, right with uh, that with puzo's take so um but ultimately you know i think they probably made the right decision in treating it as an adult themed movie and not as camp well, and you wonder if Puzo was influenced by the 1960s Batman, which was high right. camp and was extremely successful. Right. You know, it was a, a successful television show and was made into a theatrical feature. Um, right. Yeah, there was apparently a scene where there was a, a Kojak was supposed to appear as have a little cameo uh, where he was <laughs> going to say, who loves your baby <laughs> and sort of things like that. But although there is, did you notice the, there is one sort of like real 70s cameo. Did Rex you notice Reed. this? Right, Rex Reed, when uh, when Lois and Clark are walking out of the Daily Planet on Clark's first day, they run into Rex Reed, who, who and it's sort of, I think, a clever bit, basically blows off Clark Kent. Right. Um, just sort of funny. Rex Reed um, and being then, this uh, columnist, um, I think he's nationwide syndicated columnist, but very active in New York, I think, at the Daily News. Right, right. And the, and actually, the Daily Planet is filmed at the Daily News building. Right. Uh, at so least the go, exteriors. So, and the lobby, too. Like, that lobby right. with the large globe. And I remember as a kid, um, my brother and I once, on a sojourn to New York City, once went to the Daily News building just to walk around the lobby, which is exactly as it appears in uh, Superman the movie. Hmm. And then um, Donner, Donner rejected uh, Puzo's script, and then they brought in... Uh, David Newman and Robert Benton, although most of what you read uh, really suggested that Tom Mankiewicz essentially wrote the screenplay that was filmed. And um, he did not get screenwriter credit, and there was some legal wrangling over that. But but everybody, uh, from what I read and saw online, pretty much acknowledges that the, that the, the, the film script that was shot was essentially written by Tom Mankiewicz, who is mostly known for his work on uh, the James Bond movies. Right. And I think when they set out to make the movie, they the, the Salkins basically signed Brando first. And so, I, you know, Brando served as an engine to get things moving because he was you know, such a massive star, probably the biggest right, movie star. Yeah, probably the, the probably the largest, yeah, the biggest uh, Hollywood star in existence, and this is this is close on the heels of The Godfather, for which he had won Best Actor, right? So, so you could imagine, you could imagine, career. you know, like the gravitas that Brando attaching himself to this lent, right? And that's, I'm sure, what they were thinking. So they figured that that the that it was worth it, and it probably was because who knows if when or if they would have been able to get it made without doing that, right? And you know, and and again, you know, Brando has his detractors. I'm I don't count myself among them, but nobody you know, is pretty he, amusing. But he, I mean, he he holds that whole first act together. I mean, he is riveting. You cannot take your eyes off of him. And, well, it was him and a lot of model glue. Well, yeah, and and, and the reflective uh, the reflective suits the glowing um, suits helped help, but but still, like his delivery. Right. In the trial sequence is very, very well done. And then the scenes where he's sort of arguing, you know, about the, the fate of Krypton is is very, very 
It's interesting. He carries it off well. It's believable. You know, he doesn't, he plays it for seriousness. He doesn't play it as a farce or as a goof. You know, he, right. he plays it straight. He plays um, it straight and he continues that even after when he's the recorded computerized version of himself in the uh, the, the educational dad version when uh, Superman is learning once he uh, goes off to the Fortress of Solitude. He, he continues in the same same vein, and I think that was sort of very well done. Right. Um, you want to talk about uh, the casting of uh, Christopher Reeve? Yeah, because Christopher Reeve basically was an unknown. You know, really, they 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 cast so they cast Brando and Gene Hackman, also uh, Oscar winner, very well known. I think he won the Oscar for The French Connection, probably right. I believe so. And the French connection is like 72, 73, something like that. Right. And uh, so, you know, they got those two were the, the star power. Um, and then Christopher, they had a hard time casting Superman because they basically read, I guess they offered Redford um, the part initially. And, uh, and Burt Reynolds supposedly um Paul Newman so they went down the A list and for whatever reason everybody turned it down and uh, right and they, apparently they, even Bruce Jenner which has interesting implications <laughs> in the modern era but apparently Bruce Jenner tried out and uh, a dentist somebody's dentist tried out somebody who right. was involved with the production like their dentist tried out like they were so they were sort of like reaching all around for somebody right. to play Superman slash Clark Kent they're doing a remake and now Bruce Jenner's is uh, going to play Lois. <laughs> He's going to play Lois. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it, was a, uh, it was a Yeah, Chris shot. Christopherson, Charles Bronson, Christopher Charles Walken. Charles Bronson. <laughs> <laughs> like, Christopher Walken. Oh, my Lord. I'd love to now see. That I would have loved to see. Christopher Walken and Charles Bronson. <laughs> <laughs> I'd see that version. Yeah, Salkin's wife's dentist. Salkin's wife's dentist. Anyway. That's awesome. And then Lynn Stall- enter Lynn Stallmaster, right? A casting right. director. And as the legend has it, she put Christopher Reeve's photo on the top of the pile, not once, not twice, but thrice. Right. And then he was felt to be too thin. Uh, yeah. I mean, he, you know, he, when you look at video of him from that time, I mean, he looks the part. You know, so you can see why they were considering it. And apparently, he, you know, he read well and he made it a great impression, I guess. And yeah, he was skinny and maybe they were, they probably got, uh, you know, a, a paralysis by analysis once they went through hundreds of actors. You know, so right. that they were probably at that point where they were a little nervous, you know. They had, right, and the clock is ticking. Right, right. So... Finally, um, they finally picked Reeve, um, right? And they were, and he was going to wear a padded muscle suit because apparently he was, although he's quite tall, he's very tall. Yeah, and he, he towers over Margot Kidder right. in this. And uh, I think he's, he's, he was six four, six five, something like that. And but uh, he he was sort of skinny for for his height, and um, Reeve basically went and did uh, a programmed weightlifting what you know taught by uh darth vader right no other than david prowse himself right. 
and put um, on like 40 pounds of muscle basically um, before filming. Which is an interesting way to, you know, it's interesting to way to portray Superman because in the comics, he's, he's drawn as fantastically muscled. Right. But in this, like, you know, Reeve is big, but he doesn't come off like a Schwarzenegger or a bodybuilder. He just comes off as sort of a tall, muscular, fit-looking guy. Right, but you can't look. I mean, this really was – I mean, excepting Batman, I guess, in the 60s, this was the first big blockbuster, modern-style superhero Treatment, movie. Right, right, right. So, And for know, example, you know, Adam West – in Batman in the 60s does not look particularly fit. He just looks like he's wearing, you know, a leotard and running around. Like, Which he, he looks was. like, right, he probably ate, you know, ate a hamburger with fries on the set every day for lunch and that was just fine. Right, and uh, the joint. He doesn't, right. <laughs> at least, <laughs> or, at uh, least a, or at least a pack of Marlboros. <laughs> <laughs> at least, uh, what's the name of Robin he wrote? I didn't, I never, I always wanted to read his book. Uh, Burt Ward. Burt Ward, right. Burt Ward supposedly wrote the most, one of the greatest books about. Yeah, well, they basically just Hollywood. slept with everybody. Right. <laughs> that was the point of being on, on Batman. <laughs> but we digress. <laughs> yes. Um, um, uh, and then, um, and then Margot Kidder uh, right. as Lois. So, oh, you know, a note on salaries before Margot oh. Kidder. So, so Christopher Reeve made 250K for both Superman 1 and Superman 2. Right, but he was an unknown. He, he I'm was sure unknown, he was more right. than happy to have a quarter million in the 70s. Right. And Brando got 3.7 million plus 11.75% uh, percent of the gross, the box office gross. And this movie grossed 300 million. Made a lot million, of money. Right. And million Hackman, dollars. Hackman got one or two million. He I got believe. two million, supposedly. Right. Um, so. You know, what's interesting is Lois was cast after uh, Superman was cast. And you can actually watch the Lois Lane screen tests on YouTube. I watched it the other day, and they're very, very interesting. And the ones that you can see online are Ann Archer, Leslie Ann Warren, Deborah Raff, and Margot Kidder, Stockard Channing, hmm. Rizzo from Greece, nice. and Susan Blakely. And again, it is a little bit of uh, looking through the retrospectoscope, but clearly – Kidder is the the out like she is the outstanding one like she kind of nails it and she has the best take Channing actually has a, a kind of the most different take like Channing plays a much more sort of sassy uh, version of uh, Lois and actually Stalker Channing's audition tape is pretty good hmm. uh, but uh, Kiddo is definitely the standout whereas the others you can tell they did a good job, but they're not quite sure how to capture the character. Because again, this is this is the mid seventies. This is this is the height of feminism. This is the National Organization for Women and Gloria Steinem, you know. And Margot Kidder is able to sort of capture that, you know, sort of like uh, fire in the belly young reporter. You know, there's that bit where she dreams openly of winning a Pulitzer Prize, like very very right. aggressive and up and coming. And and Kidder does well. And the, the scene that they they use in the screen test is when uh, Clark visits Lois in her apartment for the interview for the Daily Planet. Hmm. Um, so the, it's worth watching. Uh, we can post the the link. Um, I think other other people that are worth uh, commenting on is Glenn Ford. Mm-hmm. Uh, Glenn Ford, who uh, he plays Pa Ken. Glenn Ford had previously gone to war with Marlon Brando during the filming of Tea House. Of uh, the August Moon, which Brando in his uh, autobiography uh, talks about how he and Ford basically openly fought and, and essentially ruined the movie. Yeah. Um, 
but they don't actually appear on screen here together. Right. Um, uh, Sarah Douglas plays Ursa, who's got a bit part in this, but she has a big part in Superman 2. Um, Susanna York plays Lara, who has a small but notable part as Superman's biological mother uh, on Krypton. And who plays... Terrence Stamp uh, plays... Uh, he plays Zod. Right, General right? Zod, who also... And who plays Non, the mute? Uh, Jack O'Halloran plays Non. I don't know if I ever saw him in another movie, Jack O'Halloran. No. Um, He's a and good then, you grunter. Know, yeah. <laughs> you could take that in a couple of ways. <laughs> um, and then, you know, um, when you know when you read about how they made this, you know... They had the cast, they had the script, but they really, really struggled with the effects. Um, And, you know, this is pre-Star Wars, this is pre-motion control. Um, You know, they had good model making. There's very, very good matte paintings Mm -hmm. in this movie. But the biggest technical challenge was obviously making Superman fly. Because I don't know if you remember this, but about a year before the movie came out, they had a trailer made that actually showed no film from the no footage from the actual movie where it was just uh, some credits over uh, sort of flying through clouds. And I believe that in that they have the tagline, you know, you will believe a man could fly. And then they said committed themselves to making Superman flying believable. Right. Uh, which apparently turned out to be fantastically difficult to do. Right. And they, it turned out that uh, there was no easy way to do it, and there was no one technique that worked best. And it was sort of a mixture of riggings, rear projection, blue screen work, Right. Stuntman, although Reeve does a, pretty much most of it where you can see his face. And then there's one or two shots uh, where it, it does look like it might be a small model of Superman just being filmed from far away. But apparently right. uh, it, it took months and months and months to figure out how to make Superman fly. And you can actually see, like as you watch the movie, you can see – sort of them shifting between techniques. And for example, like when, when he flies with Lois uh, in their big romantic scene over, over Metropolis slash Manhattan, you know, it clearly it's, it's rear projection and, and, and blue screen. Whereas, you know, other scenes like, for example, at the end of the movie, when he takes off from the, 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 the prison yard after he drops off Lex and uh, Otis, um, he's clearly in a wire harness. Right. So like, I, you know, and it's funny. And again, you know, they do a good job of it. Like, uh, like it, it comes off to the point where you're not really questioning. You're just accepting that Superman can fly. And, and even though they're shifting back and forth uh, between techniques, it's it's edited and cut together in such a way that it doesn't appear glaring or jarring. And it doesn't take you out of the movie. No, you can tell they spent an inordinate amount of effort on it. And you know what particularly looks good, I have to say, is the the wire work. Because pretty much every time he lands or takes off from a scene where there's character interaction or it's shot from the ground, uh, it's wire. And it's usually just Reeve being hoisted up or lowered. And they did, it looks good. You know, they, they got the acceleration right. They got the kind of... They they just they did a good job technically and Reeves sort of looks comfortable. 
Um, right. He doesn't look like he's sort of springing up on a wire. He sort of just looks like he floats away. And he doesn't look nervous. You know, he doesn't look right. like he's being suspended by wires and could could be dropped or fall or injured. Well, he probably was for the first eight months, but they took like <laughs> 17 years to film it. So after like, you know, he eventually just probably got bored. Right. So, you know, um, they I don't know if you notice his suit changes colors throughout the movie because yeah. – um, Blue screen when, problems, be, right? So when he would be on on the set with other characters and doing wire work, he could wear his blue suit. And then when they had to do him in front of a blue screen, they had more of a, a greenish suit for him so that he wouldn't conflict. Um, right. So do you know who Jason DeBoard is? Have you ever heard that name? No. So Jason DeBoard, um, he runs a really good website called Original prop blog and he has written many many detailed articles about uh the costumes that christopher reeve wore in the original superman films and there's actually quite a lot of them and there's an enormous and ongoing hunt for true christopher reeve superman costumes because apparently there's a lot of other costumes or fakes that have been sold off at auction but apparently there's like a whole sort of like sub school of people who can identify and type and categorize uh, actual original Christopher Reeve Superman costumes. We, we can include a link to that as well. Hmm. Um, um, some of the the effects that I thought were really good and actually involved some of my favorite parts of the movie is involving young Clark, right? So again, Act 1 is Krypton, Act 2 is Smallville, Act 3 is Metropolis. And, and actually, you know, there's a lot of great stuff in this, but I think my favorite sequence in the whole movie is really Act 2, even though there's a lot of great stuff throughout but i love the smallville scenes um and i read uh, and i saw a little bit about how when he races the train mm-hmm. uh which is just a fantastic sequence and it's very very short the scene where he you know he's uh you see him as a teenager he's sort of you know abandoned at the football team where he's somehow accepted the job of cleaning up everybody else's jock straps i'm not quite sure why why young clark you know, if, if he couldn't show his superpowers, that's one thing. Why you'd accept that job? I don't really understand why. I think uh, they but- they intimate that basically they they're overcompensating for the fact that he's Superboy because he they basically tell him to just act incompetent more or less. You know, like do they exact- do they tell him to act incompetent? I don't, I don't think so. That. But they just like they. I mean, it's it's clear that Pa Kent tells him that humble. he has to hide his powers. Right. Right. And, and right. Though maybe he's not ready to reveal or the world is not ready to receive. Him. Right. Um, but the scene where he, you know, uh, all the all the kids go off to, to listen to rock around the clock in their 50s roadster and he's left to clean up the mess on the football field. He kicks the football and then there is a phenomenal sequence uh, where he races a train. Right. Uh, where he 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 doesn't just race the train; he outraces the train. He runs alongside of it and he jumps in front of it. Right. Uh, and and the way that they did that, like they spent a tremendous amount of time and energy trying to figure out how could they make it look like this guy is outracing a train. And the answer was the act. They tried all sorts of stuff where they, they would film this guy running at different speeds, speed it up, slow it down. It all looked terrible. And then the answer was they suspended him by a harness. And the harness was was suspended by a crane, and the crane was being driven by a truck. Right. And his feet could just barely touch the ground. So whatever speed that they could drive at, 
he was hanging from the air and his feet would actually touch the ground while he was running. And that was how they were able to achieve the effect. And if you look, he does have a little bit of a funny gait because he's almost trying to reach out and catch the road as it's sort of passing underneath him. But it's a great bit. And I love the way he's wearing a knapsack that says Smallville High. (laughs) Yeah. I actually love the scene where he kicks the football because that's the first time you see since he was a kid, at least when he, when he lifts the car up, that was the first time you see him as sort of a sentient, you know, older, almost adult, do something spectacular and he does it when right. nobody's around and that actually looks great too when he kicks that football like seven right and miles. it's a long shot you know yeah. like the, the the ball travels and travels and travels i don't think you ever actually see it hit the ground right the woman by the way the woman on the train who who castigates young lois for you know seeing clark on the train is the woman who played lois lane in the 50s television show right uh but but the scenes are when he's young are very good. And then and then um when Glenn Ford dies, uh, you know, he has a heart attack. Um, that bit is also very well handled because it's sort of, you know, Superman, you know, he has a failure. He has right. a failure at an early age. So I'm not a big comic book guy, but apparently they've retconned Superman in the comics at some point. And apparently in the modern version of Superman in the comics. Pa Kent lives to adulthood, like lives to Superman's adulthood and is a source of wisdom and advice for him. But uh, I always remembered that Pa Kent was dead. Like I remember even kind of knowing in the movies that, oh, he dies, which which is really the catalyst for Clark going off to the Fortress of Solitude. I thought so too. Yeah. Um, any thoughts on the music while we're, while we're still in production? I mean, it's another great uh, John Williams score. I mean, you know, the, the movies in the, the late 70s and the early 80s had sort of like the the great orchestral scores. Um, and I guess this when, is Williams' third big, big one of the 70s, right? Jaws, Star Wars, and this. Right. Right. And who scored uh, – and Jerry Goldsmith scored a bunch of stuff too that was – Right. Jerry Goldsmith was supposed to score this right. and then it fell through, I read. Right. Um, I think it's worth talking a little bit about uh, Donner and Lester uh, because it becomes it comes relevant for sort of the Superman two angle. So Donner uh, was hired by the Salkins, uh, and they never got along. And apparently, the cast loved Richard Donner. And when you watch, like for example, I've watched several making of documentaries on YouTube, and when you watch the documentaries. Donner is never spoken of, even decades later, in anything but the most positive terms. Uh, but he did not get along with the Salkins, mostly over fights over schedule and budget, it sounds like. And then the Salkins brought in uh, Richard Lester to kind of be the second director. Lester had done, like we said earlier, the the, the three and four Musketeers movies. And apparently he had never been paid for those. And yeah, they stiffed him. Right. And he came in to uh, sort of back up direct uh, Donner to make the Salkins feel better in exchange for him actually getting paid his right. money that they owed him from exactly. uh, the Musketeer. Which, by the way, could you imagine how awful that must have been for Donner? <laughs> well, you got to think, like, why would a guy – I mean, that's the only reason the guy who was bitterly pissed off with them, rightfully, apparently, right. would come back. And the reason he came back was because they said, all right, we'll finally pay you if you come help Right? Us. Could you imagine directing two movies and not getting paid? Right. And so he comes back and he tells Donner, like, don't trust these snakes. 
That was his advice. <laughs> he tells him, watch out for the Salkins. So, you know, he kind of the way, I guess it kind of backfired. Uh, the Salkins plan kind of backfired in a way. Right. And then, I mean, it, it, we're, we're getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves, but, you know, Superman 2 says, directed by Richard Lester. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's the credit in the final theatrical release. Uh, although Donner, many years later, released his cut of Superman 2. He made most of it. The vast majority. Yeah, they. Yeah, that's the, apparently. Yeah, the the overwhelming bulk. Um, uh, so, should we go through the plot a little bit, uh, bit, bit, bit at a time? Uh, thoughts on Krypton? Um, I mean, just kind of what we said about Brando uh, is interesting. I mean, Brando. This is the point where Brando is reading off of cue cards. He stopped memorizing lines, but he's still... And I think he, he even explicitly said, I won't memorize my lines. No, like, he, 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 I think there was never an attempt to re- remember his lines. No, he, he had given that up, I think, at some point before The Godfather. Or maybe Although the Godfather it is impressive how, you know, how he outacts everyone in the room and he's reading off of you know, pieces of oak tag you know, taped around the room. He still manages to pull off a great performance. He's, his, he's the he's the first name in the credits. Yep, it's well, you know I mean, Superman starring Marlon Brando. Sure, I mean, like we said, he was the he jump started the production in some ways. Um, oh yeah, I think um, there there was a bit. I think that this was deleted because I I'm, I may be mixing some stuff up a little bit because I watched a bunch of the deleted scenes, and the reason that he sends young Kalel out and doesn't go himself is he promises the council that he will not leave Krypton. Yeah, that's in there. At least yeah. the, the version I saw was the director's cut, but I think I'm pretty sure it's in there in general, right? He, but that's he says why he'll he sends, never, he says neither right. I nor my wife will leave. Right. Wink, wink, allowing right. me to jettison my kid. I never Correct. quite understood how that ship flew. It flew on a <laughs> wire because you could tell when it crashes <laughs> well, through when the it goes ceiling, the roof. It, w- yeah. it wiggles a lot. It, yeah, that's it's funny because it's that's sort of like one of the notable rare bad effects in the movie when it goes through the. You can imagine, by the way, they thought, "Oh, this is going to look great." I know, and it, it really takes you out of the scene. Clearly, it's suspended by a wire. I know. Why didn't they put it on a stick? Right, <laughs> but I like the, I like the way when he's flying to Earth, they they show him getting educated. You know, right. sort of hearing hearing like like what's that thing where you can buy like the lectures of the great you know like a university lecture yeah. on DVD so CD and listen to it in your car. It's like you know Baby what I'm Einstein about? by Marlon Brando. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, lectures, it's kind of like Baby Einstein. <laughs> right, but he's sort of listening to like an Einstein's theory of relativity. You know? <laughs> right. Although, although wouldn't they call it something else? Like like on Krypton, why would they call it Einstein's theory of relativity? Wouldn't they be like you know ah on a Sig Er's theory of relativity? <laughs> I you thought know? of that, but then I. Figured he's just trying to get him used to earth ahead of time <laughs> right right although he although despite the fact that he listens to all this stuff he doesn't appear to be able to speak english upon arrival he he doesn't he's basically still a kid on arrival so it really was a baby einstein moment i.e it does nothing <laughs> like he he could have been right, exactly. anything you know so so how long is the journey from krypton to earth supposed to take well, I mean, I he's an infant when they put him in there. What does he to, eat, by the way? What um, does he eat in the spaceship? He, he, he doesn't have to eat, apparently. <laughs> he doesn't poop either. 
<laughs> or yeah, he's, he's completely clean. Like, like how come when Ma and Pa can find him, like he's not covered in, in stool and urine? And, you know, <laughs> they put the magic toilet crystal on that. Yeah. On there. Oh yeah, that's true. They have the toilet crystal technology. <laughs> They're very advanced as Kryptonians. Yeah. Um, but how long is it supposed to take? I guess it's supposed to be a couple of years. And you know, like if if he was gonna with Brando as his dad he certainly would have been able to eat. I mean, there's one thing <laughs> where going to make sure of is that he could eat. Right, exactly. Some Kryptonian power bars, you know, he, he tossed him in right before he closed the lid. Uh, I think, so I think he's supposed to be three or four when he lands. So it's supposed to take him probably three years, I guess. Right. Get. Although he learned, somehow he learned to walk, right? Because right. he stands right away. You know, he can hold up the truck. Right. Right. So, so he clearly wasn't walking, on Krypton, but he he's able to stand and walk well, he ages. upon them finding him on Earth. Yeah, yeah. but it's interesting. Like, but there's nowhere to walk in the ship. No, but know? there's you know he has there's a little exercise program in there. <laughs> so is Smallville? You said Kansas earlier. Is Smallville Kansas? Yeah, it's supposed to be in Kansas. Yeah, I didn't know if they actually explicitly said that it's Kansas. Yeah, it's supposed um, to be Kansas. So so he's found by Mon Pa Kent High School, um, uh, kicking Angst. the football right. right. Um, and oh, by the way, do you know after he um, when he crosses in front of the train, there's a long shot of him running from far away, mm-hmm. and he's kicking up a dirt trail. Do you know how they did that? No, it was just a guy riding a motorcycle filled from far away. That's all that was. Clever. So the so the back wheel kicked up a lot of dirt, and then you know here's something I I've struggled with a little bit because and maybe you have the answer because I don't. It's clearly the '50s in Smallville, like. They explicitly play Rock Around the Clock when uh, Lara Lang and Lana Lang and the other kids drive off in their 50s roadster. Right. And then he goes to the Fortress of Solitude, and then he emerges in the 70s. So is he in the Fortress of Solitude for 20 years? He's supposed to be 18, I think, when he goes. And I kind of got the feeling, you know, when he comes out, he's 30-ish or maybe early 30s. Yeah, so I guess, I mean, that would be about 20-ish years, roughly, you know, 18, 17 years. But, but I mean, he, he emerges in clearly 1970s Metropolis, you know, based on every, every, the way that everyone is dressed, the way that they talk, the way the cabs look, right? Yeah. The, uh, the Twin Towers are there. It's clearly uh, the 70s. Right. Especially um, the way the, the, um, the black guy comments about his outfit. I forget what he says. Oh, right. It, the, the the pimp? Yeah, the pimp. Who, <laughs> right. Ha- hey, is, Jim. Woo, that's a bad outfit. That's a bad outfit. <laughs> yeah. You know, was... by the way, you know who I think is kind of the unsung hero a little bit of the second act is Jeff East, who plays uh, teenage Clark Kent, who had apparently had to wear a ton of makeup to make him look like Chris Reeve. Right. And then, got and then they did out. not. Right, and he didn't know that. He didn't know right. that he was going to get dubbed out, and apparently uh, he bore a, a significant grudge against Christopher Reeve uh, after they made this for basically, you know, this was his this was his section of the movie, and he functionally kind of loses it. Yep. You know, he ends up looking like Christopher Reeve, and Christopher Reeve dubs over his voice, although apparently uh, they did reconcile at some point later, but apparently he was very, very upset. You could imagine they said to him, you got the title role, kid, you know? Right. <laughs> He probably felt really bad being angry at a guy with a, a lenoaxial fracture. Yeah, well, uh, later on. We'll get to that. Um, 
C1 and C2 crushed, but we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he arrives in New York. Uh, uh, sorry, Metropolis. Uh, it was funny because <laughs> even as a kid, I knew it was New York, you know? Oh, was, <laughs> I was yeah. like, oh, he's in New York. Well, they, they um, cleverly made it. They really, it, you know, it wasn't Toronto, you know? Like, it was, uh, they really made it obviously New York, which was good. You know, right, they, and, they it, got and it the gave feeling. it kind of it gave it kind of a physicality so that they could, you know, be outdoors and walk around New York City streets and it looked okay. I mean, there's a lot of set work too, but there are some scenes where they're clearly uh, outdoors. Yeah, and they really got the they got the sound right. You know, they got the ambience right um, when he arrives there, and it's a huge change from basically because the scenes before that. I mean, the guy's by himself and Brando's lecturing him in the in the ice palace. And then the next thing you know, it's it's. He's what did in, he eat in the ice palace, by the way? The same thing he ate on the spaceship, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> Man, I'm impressed. Anyway, but right, so he's in New York, right? It, it looks good. It looks good. Yeah. Um, you know the big the big scene in that sort of like really shifts the tone to the third act is obviously the helicopter scene, which I can tell you that my brother and I were both absolutely hypnotized by. Yeah. As children, and it's, it's really the it's, best it's, scene in the movie in many ways. I think so too, and it really kind of it's the most rewarding, I think, emotional scene in the movie because it's got it's got the biggest suspense and it has the best payoff, both sort of visually and in terms of the score. Right. You know, I mean, and it looks good. You know, like it's a it's a it's you know that looks like a full size set. Like that looks like Lois is hanging off. You know the the side of the building and it's a helicopter it doesn't look like a miniature it looks like a full-sized helicopter and yeah. i love the bit you know a lot of people kind of miss it where you know he walks out you know the, the, the helicopter crashes it's hanging over the edge of the building lois is is sort of dangling by the belt and there's a bit where you see her hat fall off and then when he emerges from the daily planet lobby on the street below unawares that anything is happening the hat falls and he sees the hat and that's his tip off. Uh, and it's just like right. a quick shot, but he sees her hat and he recognizes it and he looks up and he sees her. Uh, and, you know, there's that little bit of comedy, you know, at the moment of crisis, they have that little bit of comedy where he goes to change in the phone booth and he can't. Right. Cause it's just, well, it's just a little kiosk. Well, you know, that, that scene in terms the, the tone is, that is a sort. It's the climactic scene of the movie, it really. Even though it's well, so it's the early. moment. It's not the climactic scene. It's the moment of revelation, right? But basically, when you think about the the um, ebullience of the moment where he reveals himself and shows up as kind of the savior, um, and also y- you, it's the moment where he sort of takes pride in himself and you take pride in him through watching him uh, sort of have evolved to that point and grown up. Right. And now he's, he, he fulfills he's able the mantle. To, right. He's able to do what Pa Kent told him he was there to pa do. Pa Kent and, and also, and, and Marlon too, you know, Marlon's been lecturing him about how to be good and, you know, to look after the earthlings and how you're, and, uh, you know, all that dieting on the way over and everything, it just basically he, he finally, uh, he, he fulfills his destiny in that moment. And, and right. the rest of the movie, in a way. Um, well, then they, they, well, then he, then they have to have some sort of plot so he can foil a villain after that. Right. But, you know, you're always kind of chasing the dragon looking for the, the same moment where he 
he's going to sort of fulfill his destiny from that point right. on. So from that point on, the there, there's a romance and there's and – and at this point, he's still impervious. You know, right. like we, we don't yet know of kryptonite. We haven't yet seen kryptonite. Right. But that bit where he runs across the street, right? Yep. He realizes the phone booth won't work. He's right. got to change. And he runs across the street and he runs to the camera and, and pulls open his dress shirt to reveal his Superman logo as the sort of the music crescendos. Yep. You know, like, I mean, as a kid in the 70s, like, if that didn't just make you, mm-hmm. you know, make your heart race and your eyes go as wide as saucers, like, there was something wrong with you. Yep, that was the, that was the moment. And then, right, so he, he changes, he races up there, he saves everybody, and then he goes on this orgiastic uh, um, hero trip where he basically runs around everywhere saving people. Uh, right, he, you know, including, he, I believe, a cat in a tree. He saves it. Well, yeah, that's the final scene. I think when it's they're slowing down. You know, at first he he saves a bunch of stuff and villains and, so, and I had he, a large boat, a guy climbing the building, a boat, and then he and that he he becomes an engine on the seven forty seven. They lose an engine, mis- right? For no well, not reason. just the seven forty seven. Oh yeah, that's right. It's Air, Air Force, Force One. One, right? It's got to be <laughs> the seven forty seven, right? Right. So Air- I guess that would have been. Uh, I guess that probably would have been Jimmy Carter. Yeah, maybe he could have let that one drop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of like, yeah, if he thought a little bit, he might let that one go down. Uh, it was probably Walter <laughs> Mondale on there. <laughs> right. But, you know, but before we get to his sort of like uh, pantheon of, of, uh, of heroic moments, I do love very, very much, you know, when he's he's deposited the helicopter on the roof, he's deposited Lois on the roof, and 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 she sort of stammers, "Who are you?" He doesn't say, "I'm Superman." He right. says, "A friend," which I you know no one saw coming. You know, you thought he was going to say, "I'm Superman," and he doesn't. And I he am just here sort of to protect flies you. Away. Right. Yep. Um, and then and then we're you know we're very quickly introduced right now to Lex Luthor in the guise of Gene Hackman. Right with Ned Bear, Ned Beatty, and Valerie Perrine as uh, the ever popular Miss Tessmacher. You know that um, uh, Hackman refused to wear. uh, So, like you know, Lex is bald in the comics, and Mm -hmm. Hackman refused to shave his head. So, what they did is to make it look like Lex is wearing a series of bad wigs. They styled Gene Hackman's hair differently every couple of scenes. Like his Mm -hmm. hair changes all the time. To sort of create, you know, something not right up there in the viewer's mind. And at the end of the movie, when, you know, he pulls off his wig, that's actually a bald cap. But right. Hackman refused to shave his head for this. Yep. I think Ned Beatty is pretty funny. You know, he's, you know, I, I mean, if there's a campy bit to this movie, it's it's Ned Beatty as Otis. Right. But because it's in isolation, he it's it's pretty funny. Yeah. You know, the bit like where he, he brings Lex the robe while he's still in the pool or where he writes Otisburg on the map of uh, future California. Yep. Or even the bit at the very, very, the last scene of the movie where, you know, Lex is proclaiming he's the greatest criminal mind uh, in the prison yard. Uh, you know, he's essentially acting as his echo, kind of repeating his last couple of words over and over and over to sort of make Lex look and sound better. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the the... The criminal uh, lair down under uh, Grand Central is like the greatest set. I mean, that is that is the most amazing, well done set 
I mean, I just remember seeing the movie when I was a kid and being completely blown away by it. And it still looks incredible. You know, that, that swimming pool with the sunken train platform right. and the right all around and the desks it. and the, I mean, it reminded me of, um, at the end of the planet of the apes, uh, where they're in the subway, yeah. you know, sort of like another seventies use of the New York subway as a major location, uh, to drive a story. Yeah, and it just looks so palatial and uh, somehow doesn't seem crazy. Um, right. It, Although seemed- I was wondering, watching it now, like, how'd they get all that stuff down there? You know, like, he's got a lot of equipment and furniture. You know, how'd he get right. it down there? Uh, bribes. <laughs> it was the 70s. Bribes, and then he killed the people who brought it down. <laughs> it's like the pharaohs. <laughs> um. Uh, what do you think about the romance, the romance between uh, uh, Lois and Superman? It's a little abrupt at first because basically he falls for her the second he gets out of the ice palace. You know, like the, the next second you see him and he, he, he rides the Daily Planet and he's got the hots for Lois right away. Right, the shiksa. It's, it's like the first chick that he lays eyes on. <laughs> You know? Oh, look, he's been in an ice cave for 12 years. I, well, couldn't they? I, I think Marlon could have put some porn crystals on the Newtonian uh, <laughs> porn. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's true. You know, 12 years at the Fortress of Solitude, you know. <laughs> all he had was a couple of magazines up yeah. there. <laughs> Fortress of Solitude tells you all. Tells you everything. Tells you all right you there. need to know. <laughs> a lot of bad stuff going on there. And Margot Kidder looks very, very attractive in this. Like, I have no uh, qualms saying that. Like, she looks great. Right. You know, I mean, if you watch her, like, I've seen, I saw some interviews with her from the earlier 70s. Like, there's a great bit where she's on DeCavit and she looks almost like a supermodel. Uh, and she looks very, very good in this. Like, she doesn't look like a kid in this. She looks like a full grown adult. Right. Um, but, you know, she's not, you know, she's, she's not, not a kid. sort of. She's not a kid, and she she does. There is a little bit of her being the screaming female that has to be saved, i.e., the helicopter scene. But she's pretty. She's a pretty forceful presence. And for oh, example, yeah. like the scene where they get mugged, you know, like you know, she's very very strong in that scene. Now, obviously, Clark is playing down that he's you know catching the bullet. Dot dot dot. But you know, that's a good bit where she doesn't want to give her purse to the mugger. You know, that's that's the feminist seventies Lois right there. You kind of have to assume that that's why he really falls for her right away is because he sees her as this sort of unique, forceful, uh, intelligent woman. And he kind of he likes it. I guess he he'd never seen something like that. I mean, that's sort of what I assume that explains how abrupt it is. Maybe, maybe. And um, and, you know, she's got to act. She's got to act off both her scenes with. Clark Kent and Superman and and treat them differently. You know, I I read one interesting line is they said to um, Reeve, I don't remember who said this to him, but somebody said to Reeve, you're not playing Superman and Clark Kent. He said, you're playing Superman. And when you're Clark, you're playing Superman playing Clark. Right. And like, that's how you have to do it. And, And you know, if you you think about it, that's really kind of what he pulls off. And he, you know, and Reeve, you know, we really haven't talked about his performance much, but it's terrific. I mean, it's incredibly earnest. I mean, he really pulls it off. And in a way that I don't know if any other superhero movie after that has been that successful. Um, 
I don't know if anybody because they the characters tend not to be as humanized. I guess maybe Spider Man with uh, the later remakes of Spider Man they do to some extent, but he's not he's not self conscious. It doesn't feel like he's acting in a superhero movie. It doesn't feel like he's going through the motions and there's an inevitable occurrence that's going to happen. He feels really like Superman playing Clark Kent. And he, he, he draws you in right away into his charade. And the, you know, that's really a lot of the drama that's left once he reveals himself and has the little uh, hero gasm where he runs around uh, after his reveal. Right. Then after that, there's the romance and then there's the, there's the secret identity and the tension there. And is, is he going to say anything to Lois? Is she going to notice? Like, you know, when he's in the apartment, he almost tells her for a second. He wants, he very much yeah. wants to tell her. Right, right away. Uh, once he spends time flying around with her and she does that terrible song. Um, <laughs> <laughs> terrible can you read song. my mind? <laughs> right, right. right. Um, um, but, and then, you know, sort of the 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 other transient love moment is, I guess, his kiss with Miss, Miss Tessmacher, right? Right. Right. You know, she kind of, as, as much as he falls for Lois, in a different manner, Miss Tessmacher falls for him. Right. She falls right? for him. Sort of pretty he's... much from the first time she sees him. Right. She sees how earnest he is and she, I guess, right. and falls what a, for what a, what a shit heel Lex is. Right. You know, she makes that great comment, like, why can't I ever fall for a nice guy? And she kisses him before she, when he's, when he's, you know, in the swimming pool with the kryptonite around his neck. Uh, you know, she kisses him before she takes the kryptonite off of him. Right. Because she knows that she won't get another chance. Yep. Which is also well done. Hackman is good. Uh, you know, he's, I think, I think he's sort of the least memorable right. between Hackman, Reeve, and Brando. Uh, although, you know, he kind of spends a lot of time chewing scenery in this. I mean, his part is written over the top and he plays it very over the top. Right. And I'm not sure. So I, I guess there's, I guess there's some camp to him too. There is. I mean, there's always camp in a supervillain. I guess. I mean, the whole concept of a supervillain is goofy, campy in a way. I mean, right. His plan is to break off California and make money in real estate. <laughs> right, right. Like the movie's actually about real estate. <laughs> it's kind of a goofy. <laughs> I mean, huh? You know, <laughs> it's goofy. So, I mean, they could have come up with something else, you know, but that's pretty campy. That's so, what they came up with. Yeah. Thank you, Tom Mankiewicz. <laughs> well, that was probably left over from Mario Puzo's script. Maybe. I gotta, I'll have to look online yeah, and see I'm if curious. you can find the Puzo script. The missiles look good. Uh, right. The missile flight scenes look good. Uh, and I like, I like when Lex says to him, even you can't stop two of them. You know, right. fired in opposite directions. And, and, you know, it actually turns out later on he – can fly fast enough that he could have, but he didn't know that then, you know, and this right. sort of moment of doubt passes across Reeve's face as it's revealed to him that there are two missiles fly- flying in opposite uh, directions. Right. Um, I very much like also um, the scene where Lois dies and yeah. he finds her, you know, and there's a, you know, like the, the scene where Lois dies is, it's not a short scene. I mean, like they, the camera sort of lingers over her being, you know, buried alive. Yeah, and it's pretty. It's, uh, it's in pretty the car. It's it is not. It's an unpleasant scene for sure. I mean, the 
And it's long, you're right, because they keep cutting back and forth between Lois being buried alive and him racing around. And uh, it's it's pretty rough. And the scene and the scene where he lifts her car out, he rips the door off. You know, he looks genuinely upset and hurt. Right. When I was a kid, I wasn't sure if he was actually stopping the Earth's rotation and changing it, or was he just flying so fast that he himself was moving backward in time? But on rewatching it, it's pretty clear that you know the only you know his answer to solve the problem because the, since the second missile does hit California is he actually does stop the earth and change its rotation because he does it he starts it going again like once he stops it and moves it backwards he has to stop it and then get it going the right right speed although amazing that he got it the exact right speed <laughs> Well, I don't see how. I just imagine if he was off by like 5%. (laughs) Well, I just, I don't see how, um, well, everybody's watches would be off, first of all. (laughs) I never quite understood, even even as a kid, I remember asking my father, like, That makes no sense. How did that make the time go backwards? Yeah, it doesn't really, even, uh, you know, the the whole concept of naive physics, you know, like, uh, like things sort of seem right even though it's not the way real physics works that doesn't even seem right in naive physics you know no yeah it truly it truly is sort of like you know i mean i guess at this point we've accepted that a little boy flies uh, naked to earth uh, can fly uh, is impervious to bullets and fire etc 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 so i guess at this point we could believe that he could you know if he could turn back time if he could find a way so to speak um <laughs> Uh, but you know i I will not lie to you that it is a bit of a stretch there they could have had her as uh lois lane sure (laughs) sure yeah it's the 70s you know maybe had maybe sunny could have played otis (laughs) (laughs) i mean sure that you that's perfect they she could have she could have the closing credits could have been if i could turn back time right she could have sung i think in the in the original ending, in the Donner ending, uh, the missile he pushes into outer space frees the three criminals from the Phantom Zone. Although right. that doesn't happen in uh, in this version. By the way, the Phantom Zone uh, looks a little amusing. It looks it actually cracks me up when they're flying away, moaning <laughs> with a piece of <laughs> just, glass, just staring at it, staring at it, it's screaming. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's pretty funny. What would they do in the Phantom Zone? Just like play, like play cards? Like what would the three of them do in there? <laughs> uh, apparently, the only difference is they don't have Marlon Brando lecturing them, <laughs> <laughs> and they randomly just end up in Earth orbit, even though it's like a trillion light. It's actually so he's Krypton. Krypton is, not, is in another galaxy, so he, right. they they make a point of saying that. So he didn't even. It's not even in the. He didn't even f- travel across the Milky Way. I mean, he came from, right. He came from another galaxy. Another galaxy. <laughs> That's a long trip. That is a damn but. I, long but on trip. the other hand, you can you can say that it took about thirty years, right? Right. It took because Clark is in his thirties. He arrived as a I don't know a toddler, right? So it roughly took about thirty man thirty years, and uh, you know you're trapped there with uh, with Sarah Douglas and that guy who just grunts. <laughs> <laughs> Enough right. with the grunting already. <laughs> and no TV. That's the real punishment. Nothing. No iPad. No nothing. <laughs> That's the real punishment it's a, of the fans. Occupied. Not even Netflix. Nothing. 
<laughs> maybe they maybe it didn't take it that long. They were just in like a really elliptical, weird orbit around <laughs> around the sun for like twenty nine years. <laughs> they finally got to Earth. Right. You know, it was like one of the, one of those comets on the you know the thirty year orbit. So I always thought, and I always said that I would never see a better superhero movie than Superman one. And then when I saw the Dark Knight. I had to kind of rethink that because the Dark Knight, you know, I mean, Chris Nolan has a completely different take on a superhero movie. And granted, Batman has no powers per se. He's just a guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but I really think that I I don't know, maybe you disagree, but I kind of feel like the only real superhero movie that I've ever seen that kind of can challenge Superman one is really the Dark Knight. I don't remember The Dark Knight well enough to compare it directly. I mean, Superman is a superhero movie that plays by and obeys all the rules, whereas The Dark Knight is a superhero movie that intentionally throws out the rule book, which is why it does so well. Like It's, it's almost mm-hmm. like you know everything they you thought was supposed to happen in a Batman movie, they just said, well, we're not going to do that, and we're going to go in another direction. And, you know, sort of interestingly, both this and The Dark Knight, you know, cannot be viewed in retrospect without looking through the prism of tragedy, both, you know, the tragedy of Christopher Reeve and the tragedy of Heath Ledger. Yeah. Right? I mean, both movies have a tale, you know, of loss. Right. Tale meaning like T-A-I-L, like the event afterward. Um, And I will tell you that it is very hard for me to watch this movie now and not be reminded, you know, of all that Christopher Reeve went through and suffered uh, before, you know, his eventual demise. In the same way, when you watch The Dark Knight, you know, like you are reminded at every turn that, you know, Heath Ledger turned in the performance of his life, you know, immediately before his life ended. Right. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I really remember of, about The Dark Knight is Heath Ledger. Well, he, he, I mean, the movie, I actually, I've always said that the movie should have been called The Joker because yeah. it's really his movie from start to finish. You know, you're really, you know, Bale does a good job as Batman, but you really are just waiting for the next scene where Ledger shows up because he, you know, he's so captivating. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and it's a totally different kind of take on the Joker that I think most mainstream audiences had ever seen before. Mm-hmm. Although I don't know, I don't know how much of the, the Batman comics you've read, but you know, there's, there's like, if you read, for example, like the killing joke or some of the modern Batman graphic novels, you could see a lot of where they took the characterization of the Joker in the dark Knight from. Right. Uh, but again, like, to bring it back to, to Christopher Reeve, you know, like he's here and here he's young, he's strong, he's, you know, he's virile, he's, he's everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, it's, you know, I think all of us have that image of him in the wheelchair, you know, as a quadriplegic with a, a tracheotomy tube, you know, sort of etched into our brain. Like it is, yep. it is hard to separate the two that, that of all people that, that it could have happened to Superman. Yeah. It was tragic. And then, you know, then his wife died like a year later. Yeah, I think she had breast she, cancer. Yeah, the, the, she had the, breast cancer. Yeah, she was young. Yeah, yeah. I've I've actually seen the 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 footage of him falling off the horse. I believe. 
um, and he gets his hands caught in the rain. I'm pretty sure I've seen it. I, there's a small chance I'm, I'm remembering that I saw it and I didn't, yeah. but I'm pretty sure I've seen it. And the horse balks at a jump and he goes over and he gets his hands caught in the reins and he can't put his hands out. And he crushed C1 and he's C2. Yeah, he landed right um, on top of his head. Yeah. Um, and he was apparently, you know, he, he didn't breathe for a few minutes on the scene. He's lucky he wasn't brain dead. I know. Um, That's amazing he survived, actually. They must have, you know, yeah. intubated him right there. He actually wanted to die. Like, uh, we're getting a little macabre here, but he uh, he explicitly uh, said at one point that he did want to die. And I think that, you know, he, he sort of turned that around, but he did uh, – he did uh, – he did want to die for a while. And honestly, you know, you could, how could you blame him after, you know, sure. everything he'd been and was known for and was done for. So I had done, you know, to sort of have that happen to him. I know. Um, uh, is it worth, is it worth mentioning the Superman curse in this context? Right. Have you heard of the Superman curse? Yeah. Um, right. I mean, the Superman curse kind of starts with George Reeves, right. Who died under, so-called mysterious circumstances, but may well have just committed suicide, right? The idea that the idea that bad thing happens, bad things happen to people who play Superman, right? Bad things happen right. to George Reeves. Bad things happen to Christopher Reeve. Uh, Dean Cain's career certainly didn't do well <laughs> over the long the long haul. Well, not quite in the same <laughs> for, category, is it? For playing, right, but still. <laughs> oh, Dean Cain. Uh I don't know, but I guess I guess other people have played. I guess I guess Ben Affleck, you know, was brave enough to play uh, Batman recently. We'll have to see, sorry, sorry, Superman. Superman. What about we'll have to the, see how he what about goes the dude there. from Smallville? Does that count? Yeah, well, I mean, he certainly played Superman. I mean, I did not watch Smallville. I watched. I've watched scenes of and excerpts from Smallville. It wasn't really Superman uh, anyway. I only saw. Well, but you know, they were. I believe that they were. They were contractually restricted. In showing things like I don't believe that they could show him in the suit. I don't believe that they could show him fly like they they had stipulations put on them. And only at the I believe in the last episode, uh, in a brief sequence of the last episode of Smallville, do we actually uh, in a manner of speaking, see um, Superman in the suit and fly. But they have to kind of do it in a sort of roundabout way because that was part of the deal that they made in order to make that show. I think it was mostly a like a kind of a soap opera. Yeah, not like really. a teen soap opera. Right, it's basically not really Dawson in, Dawson's Creek with right. you know superpowers. Right, it's not really in the genre. It's in a different genre, I think, overall. Yeah, although I mean again, it has a pretty big following. I mean, I myself did not watch it very much, but it has a pretty big following. I know, but the following um, was mostly like teenage girls who weren't really into superhero movies. I don't know. Is that is that exclusively true or I don't know. I don't know if it had a, just a girl or a male following. I don't know the answer to that. It's probably not entirely, but I bet you it was. I mean, it's kind of a chick show. <laughs> well, the guy was like an underwear model before he played young Clark. Right. Um, you know, as as the movie ends, uh, it does end with a phenomenal sequence. Um, you know, he he drops Lex and Otis off in jail. I guess, does, I guess Miss Tessmacher – Evades justice. She just suddenly occurred to me. Yeah. She doesn't get hauled off to prison. I guess she just, she she's let go. We don't see her in Superman 2, do we? No, we do. That's right. No, we do. I'm totally wrong. Because she rides a sled 
with Lex up to the North Pole because they find the Fortress of Solitude using uh, brainwaves, et cetera, et cetera, and Superman mm-hmm. too. So, but I guess so. She somehow she somehow escapes justice in this one. Uh, but but the last scene of the movie, you know, is really memorable not for the fact that he flies up off literally into the sunset, but he smiles, and that's how the movie ends. You know, he flies up high and he sort of turns to the camera and just for just a second or two as he sort of exits the frame, he gives a very, very winning smile. And then that's where the movie ends. And it's a it's a great final finish. Uh, And it really kind of like, you know, it's such a rewarding moment in the, you know, the John Williams score is you know, playing in the background. And it it is they you know, they you gotta hand it to Donner, like he helmed this thing well. Oh yeah. And it wasn't an easy thing to make uh technically or because of fights with producers and casting difficulties and it was mighty expensive. Um and uh you know, in a very extended period of production I mean it it's must have been a very tough one. To make well, and and you can imagine even tougher with the fact that he didn't get along with the Salkins. Sure, yeah. No, it was you know, and he's trying to he's trying to make this mon- this monstrous production work, you know, while these guys are breathing down his neck. I wonder if he got paid. You know, did he not get paid like Lester got paid? Or I don't know. I don't know. That would be interesting if you know if you watch uh, if you watch interviews with Donner online. And there's a couple of them. Like, you know, you could see even all this time later, like it's hard for him to talk about some parts of it. Like it was probably, you know, you know, his biggest movie up to that time. Uh, but, you know, and he probably knew he had the tiger by the tail. Like this was a really big one. You know, this is before he made the Lethal Weapon movies, et cetera. But, right. uh, you know, he probably knew like this has really got to go well. And then it turned out to be probably a miserable, miserable period in his life. Yeah. I think it holds up well. Like, uh, you know, some of the movies we're going to talk about in the 70s, I don't think are going to hold up as well as this. And, you know, I I rewatched this and I rewatched some of the scenes repeatedly. Um, And, you know, it looks dated in some respects, but that's okay. You know, it's a it's a 40 year old movie, pretty much. Mm -hmm. But but the effects largely hold up and it's very internally consistent. And you know, the minus minus up. a few minus a few things, yeah. And the earnestness holds up, and I think the earnestness gives it a, a bit of a timelessness. Yes, I mean that's to me that's where they really succeeded beyond the effects, beyond the, uh, I mean the the flying and the models and the things that they, the effects they accomplished, some of which hold up better than others. What certainly holds up is how earnest it was, the the character development of Superman Reeves performance um lois right lois their relationship um those things hold up really well not so much the song uh can you read my mind (laughs) (laughs) no although the williams score holds up the williams score is great i mean he that and 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 that opening credits you know that opening credits looks great today yeah yep they did a great job. Uh, I wonder. They, I wonder how they did that. I wonder if that was a slit scan effect. I should look up how they did that. 
don't know. Yeah, I don't know, but like you know, like I I watched over the last week. I watched that opening credits about six times, mm-hmm. uh, just to sort of like it has sort of an ebb and flow, and and it's long. It's like five minutes. You yeah. know how how many movies now can have a five minute credit sequence that you enjoy? The late seventies before the the movie starts. The late seventies is like the pinnacle of big um, title scenes and orchestral uh, melodic scores. Some of which well, go together. and again, I think, and a lot of that I think comes back to John Williams, who was kind of leading that charge, you know. And by the eighties, you know, that was kind of almost expected that a lot of movies, you know, like the Star Trek movies would have a big score, mm-hmm. right? The Star Wars sequels would have a big score, but you know, this was, you know, like you kind of came out of the theater humming it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, Donner, Richard Donner is still alive. He's eighty six. Jesus. So he's he's uh I think he's the same age as Shatner, I believe, or close About, to it. Yeah. He's from the Bronx. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> uh uh you had uh you had a, a note in our thing about uh did you want to talk about uh Superman mythology uh and the Jewish aspects? Yeah, we could edit it out if we're too <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I think I think it's it's interesting because there's sort of dual religious interpretations to Superman, right? Um, right. I mean, I mean, he's created by two Jews, right. Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster, right? And there's also a, right, who I, I believe are both Jews. Yeah, and there's also a right. There's a there's a Christian New Testament kind of take on it, also with him being um, the son of Brando and sort of basically being a savior for earth right and, like and, and and brando brando sends his only begotten son Correct. to earth right um, uh and again you know i mean it's you know superman's story is the immigrant story right and there's a reason that metropolis is new york you know i mean lois is as i, I said it earlier i don't know if you heard i mean lois is essentially the shiksa you know he's got to yep. assimilate and he falls for he falls for the not just the first girl he lays on his own but the first shiksa although i guess he fell for lana lang a little bit too Who's also got to be a shit. I don't think there were a lot of Jews in Smallville. <laughs> you know, that, that synagogue in Smallville did not get a lot of visits. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think they had a canter. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, there is a lot of Christian uh, imagery in this movie, I think, you know, um, I mean, you know, the, I mean, even to the point where, you know, Superman, you know, in act three, you know, dies and comes back to life. Right. Right. When he, he functionally drowns, uh, before he is resurrected. Right. But, um, none of, by the way, none of which, none of that I picked up as a child, but. Right. And it's, I think in the movie, I think the religious stuff is is weaker than really the comic book story, where it's a sort of aspirational um, story from a from kids who feel particularly powerless, um, imagining a beaten. They man. can do anything, right? right. So I, they I, could, yeah, they could defeat anybody. I think it's more of a stretch in the movie um, than in the the original story. Yeah, and the, and the movie the movie doesn't do this stuff overtly, but I think I think you know. But again, sort of the 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 story of Kal El sending his only son. I mean, that's a little hard to get around, right? 
you know, when I was a kid and, you know, I, I, when I was a kid, I had a reprint, obviously not an original, but I had a reprint of the very, very first Superman comic. And I read a, a couple of comic versions of that. And, you know, the one thing that I do wish that they had done in this that they didn't do is to talk about, you know, where the costume comes from. Because it might be in the original or it might be in one of the others that I read as a kid where they very, very neatly explain where the everything comes from. And like, for example, the costume is the blanket that he was wrapped in. Right. And his glasses are the window of the spaceship. Right, they're cut from the window in the spaceship, and you know, and the and and the the, uh, the eyeglass frames are made from pieces of the spaceship. Like the idea that, like, you know, Superman can't just wear, you know, cotton or polyester. Like he's got to wear a costume that could be Superman's costumes and impervious as well. I mean, you know, when he goes to Lex's, you know, lair and they shoot bullets at him and fire. You know, he walks through flame. Like he doesn't emerge naked. Right, and he needs a nice corduroy <laughs> version for winter. <laughs> I like the way that he has time to comb his hair, you know, when he changes like when he's in the revolving door and Lois is dangling from the helicopter. Yeah. He he manages to to put brill cream in his hair and well, you know, make a spit curl. The, yeah, the little the little spit curl is always perfect. <laughs> I know, but like, you know, he was like, Well, you know, I could get Lois, but you know, let me just use two hundred milliseconds and, and comb my hair. <laughs> I can I can catch her if she falls another couple stories. <laughs> but uh but I I remember as a kid really liking sort of like the the internal logic of where his actual costume came from and and, and I think there's a bit where his mother sews the costume with a needle which is cut from the shell of the ship. Like they had everything had to come back to what he came with. Right. So you could only sew the costume with a Kryptonian needle, right? And I believe that he cut the lenses for his glasses with his heat vision. Anyway. Right. That's the kind of detail level that's in comics though that they, they usually don't translate into movies because it's too dorky for for general yeah, consumption. Yeah, unless or if they did it they would have to do it as a like a scene in a montage, you know what I mean? Like all they had to show would be like Ma Kent rocking on the porch, sewing, you know, sewing the suit. Right. Or she's doing it during some other scene in the background or they throw a bone to the two dorks watching. (laughs) Um, Any, any last or parting thoughts on uh, Superman, also known as Superman, the movie? No, I think uh, I think we summed it up. We'll move on to our next uh, next segment next time. Yeah, I I tell you the one the last thing I'll say is is you know I always kind of and from what I had read years ago like I always thought that kind of Lester was sort of the villain of the story, kind of stealing credit for Superman too. But sort of in preparation for this, it actually turns out that Lester comes across as a pretty good guy right. who was basically trying to get money owed to him. And uh, stay out of Donner's way. So it's interesting. It's sort of like the rehabilitation of Richard Lester yeah. uh, via Superman. Thanks for listening. All right. Yeah, thanks, everybody. And uh, we'll post some links uh, on the site, hopefully. <laughs>